You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. church. So excited uh, to be concluding this teaching series, Gardens. If you're just joining us, uh, this is the end of a four-week teaching series uh, going through the gospel, looking at four different gardens in scripture. I didn't begin the series uh, by letting people know this, but I'll tell you now that we're at the end. This was not the series I had planned when I got back from my trip to Australia. Uh, I got back, and, and this happens sometimes, where I'll look at the upcoming teachings and, and what's coming down the pipe, and it was like a week and a half from you know our, kind of our Easter teaching series, and it just didn't feel right. Uh, it just felt like God had something different planned, and so here we are, uh, this Gardens teaching series, and I've just been amazed by how God has used you know just us focusing on these different gardens. Of course, you can uh, go back and watch uh, the YouTube. You can listen to the podcast uh, if you want to catch up at all. But I'll just do a quick recap. Uh, The first week, we looked at the Garden of Eden. We literally were in page one of the Bible, and we learned that God is good. God is the creator. God is holy. And he created us in his image, human beings. And he gave us this beautiful purpose to rule and reign over his good creation, But sin ruined everything. Sin ruined everything. It brought death, disease, evil into our lives. But there was a promise there. The seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent, and that brought us all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. That that person, that Savior, the long-awaited Messiah, came 2,000 years ago. His name was Jesus, and he is both uh, the Son of God as well as God in flesh. And he faced the suffering, the pain, the death, and the wrath of God for us in our place on the cross. But the story doesn't end there. Last week was Easter Sunday, and we looked at another garden. Does anyone remember the garden last week? The garden tomb. I heard someone kind of mumble it, right? The garden tomb. That the tomb that Jesus was laid was in a garden. It was in a place of beauty. And uh, of course, the resurrection reminds us that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the devil. And yet, as, as, much, uh, as much as that is good news for us, and yet, if Jesus has defeated sin, why do we look at the world and still see sin? Why do we look at our own lives and still struggle with sin and temptation? If Jesus has defeated death, why will we all Die. If Jesus has defeated the enemy, why is our battle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the principalities, the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms? Does anyone else wonder that sometimes, right? Does the hope of, is the hope of the resurrection, the hope of Easter, is that something that we just like to talk about, but it doesn't actually make a difference in our lives? And, uh, and yet, the way to answer that question is, there's another garden. There's another garden. Theologically speaking, it's because we live in the now and not yet of the kingdom of heaven. It's the idea that, yes, Jesus has won the decisive victory in his death, burial, and resurrection, and yet 
The ultimate fulfillment of these promises is something that we await in the future. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, addresses this. He wrestles with this idea of resurrection. In fact, what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's, he's uh, proving the resurrection of Jesus by listing all the eyewitnesses. He's saying, I saw Jesus, you know, I saw the resurrected Christ. And he talks about the significance in the middle of the chapter. He says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then, uh, then those also who have fallen asleep, that's another way of saying who have died, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Now, this isn't to minimize the fact that, yes, the gospel makes a difference right now today in your life, but not only right now today. There's a future hope, and it's something that we have to hold uh, onto both of those kinds of hope. We have to live in the tension, so to speak, that the gospel changes your life today, it should make a difference in how you live, in the fruit of the Spirit, it should make a difference in you know, the forgiveness of sin that you experience, but the ultimate fulfillment of that hope is not in this life only, according to the Apostle Paul. There's a future fulfillment, and it's actually a fulfillment in the resurrection from the dead. Now that language is maybe a little different than we're used to talking about. Generally what we talk about is the life now and the afterlife, right? When you die, you go to heaven or hell. That's kind of what traditionally people think. But the reality is it's more than a two-step process, it's a three-step process. N.T. Wright has this clever line to describe it that really our hope is in life after life after death, life after the afterlife. And we know a little bit about the afterlife, that we have this present age right now, and when you die, your body stays here on earth. Jesus, one of the best teachings, in my opinion, about you know, what little we know about the afterlife, what some scholars call the intermediate state, is in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I would encourage you, if you wanna learn more about the afterlife proper, then read Luke 16 and read what Jesus has to say. There's Hades and there's paradise. There's a place of anguish and there's a place of, uh, there's a place of comfort. And yet, our hope is not in that our hope is actually in what comes after that. The third step is there's a resurrection of every single human being on planet Earth who's ever lived. Jesus will return and he will judge the righteous and the unrighteous and there will be this final separation and some will go away to eternal punishment and some will go away to eternal life as Jesus says in Matthew 25. John Mark Comer puts it like this, contrary to the popular saying, heaven is not our home. Have you ever heard that saying? Maybe there's even songs, this, this world is not my home, heaven is my home. He's saying that's actually not quite accurate. Earth is, not earth as it is now, but earth as it will be in the future. Our hope isn't for another place, but for another time. And I think that's a really helpful distinction. Uh, there's so much that comes to our minds when we think about heaven and hell, we think about the afterlife, and much of it, whether we care to admit it or not, is informed by cartoons, or comic strips, or literature, 
or movies or stuff that we don't even know quite why we picture the devil with a pitchfork. We just do, right? It's just how we think about them. These are caricatures that aren't actually found in scripture. That our hope is not in, you know, becoming little naked babies with wings playing harps forever and ever, right? <laughs> Thanks, Raphael and the Renaissance. Like, it's like, it's, that's not our hope. Our hope is actually beneath our feet right now. It's in the return of heaven to earth. It's in a renewed earth that will take place after the resurrection of the dead. So we're gonna be looking at that. We're gonna be looking at that today. And in Revelation 21, you see this, this beautiful fulfillment of that promise. Christ is returned and sin, death, and the devil are fully removed from this present age. This is where every tear will be wiped away. It might be familiar. There's comfort. Uh, there's, no more, there, there's no more death or mourning or sickness or pain or any of that bad stuff. And then there's this kind of strange picture we get in the middle of Revelation 21 where a giant city called the New Jerusalem descends from heaven to earth. And it's like this solid gold cube or pyramid. It's really under, unclear. And uh, it's not like a tiny city. It's like over 2 million square miles, the majority of the continental United States, right? So it's like this huge, like descending New Jerusalem. And that, that word, you know, term Jerusalem, I think there is not meant to say that it it's gonna actually be where Jerusalem stands, but what, what was Jerusalem in the days of the kingdom of Israel? It's the capital, right? The capital of the kingdom. It's a way to say that God's kingdom is here now, fully uh, on earth, and this is where the walls are gold and the streets are gold and the gates are pearly, right? It, those, are act, you know, those are actually descriptions. It's unclear whether it's actually going to look like that or whether that's just trying to describe what's indescribable about the new heaven and the new earth. And guess what else is in the new Jerusalem? Go ahead and guess. There's a garden. <laughs> There's a garden. Turn with me, Revelation 22, first five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, sound familiar? With its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen? I hope that you are so filled with hope today as we reflect on these five verses of Scripture. Uh, there are four things that I wanna draw out of this new Jerusalem, this garden city. But the first one is just I wanna, I wanna point out, it's a return to Eden. It's a new and better. Here's a picture actually from Bible Project, uh, from their video of the water of life. And I think it's, it's, it's really beautiful. It's what Eden was always supposed to be. Do you remember all those raw materials like just bound up that potential, like bound up within the earth underneath Eden? the gold and the onyx and those things, the city is literally made out of that stuff. 
What God had desired for his people to do, to go and make something of the world, God has done that work himself. He has prepared a home for us, and we get to live in it and worship God forever and ever. That's the last, we looked at the first page of the Bible, this is the last page of the Bible. The story begins and ends with a garden, and today this is a new and better Eden. I wanna show you four ways that this new city is better than Eden. The first one is the water of life, for taking notes. The water of the life is meant to show us this deep sense of satisfaction. Without water, physically speaking, we would die. I mean, how, how long, like, think about the longest you ever went without drinking water and how thirsty you were. It was probably like a day or less, right? We need, water is one of those ingredients that is necessary for life, and yet there is this river that's flowing out of the throne of God. Do you remember what was flowing out of Eden? There was a river that split into four, right? This is this picture of, there, there's this river, but it's better, it's living water. It's clear as crystal, triple osmosis filtered, right? Starbucks, eat your heart out, triple osmosis. And it's flowing from God himself. Do you catch that? It's in the center of the city, there's this throne, and the river is flowing out of God himself. This idea of, of, of a river, it shows up in Ezekiel, it shows up in Psalm 1, right? Blesses the person who meditates on the law of the Lord. They will be like a tree planted by water that has these deep roots. It never runs dry and it causes that person to prosper forever. But perhaps one of the best teachings on living water is also penned by the apostle John who wrote Revelation. In John's gospel, he's the only gospel author to record this event of Jesus with the woman at the well. Do you remember that story? There's this uh, Samaritan woman, and she has lived a life of sin. She's slept around, she's committed adultery, she's done all that sort of stuff. In fact, she's in uh, at the well in the middle of the heat of the day, likely because she has shame that she brings with her. There's kind of a stick, you know, think of that like scarlet letter idea. There's stigma around this woman. So she tries to go when no one else will go in the middle of the day, and Jesus is there with her at the well, and she is deeply thirsty. But what she longs for is not actually what she's looking for. Jesus talks to her about a different kind of water, and, he, and she thinks at first it's just physical water. You know, can you seriously install indoor plumbing in my house? That would be amazing, Jesus. But look at what he says to her in John 4, 13 and 14. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the living water he's talking about, will be, uh, or not the living water, but the water she's looking for, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that who will give? That Jesus will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And guess what kind of water is there in the New Jerusalem? It's this, this water of life. It's this deep satisfaction that we find in God himself. And yet, I just wanna pose this question. It shows up in, in Jeremiah chapter two. If God is the source of living water, of the deep satisfaction that our souls crave, why in the world do we spend our time at broken cisterns? Why do we keep trying to drink out of the same well that will leave us thirsty again 
and again. James Hamilton Jr. says it like this, all around us, people are doing things that they foolishly think will prove to be shortcuts back to the Garden of Eden. And those things that look like shortcuts are nothing but broad paths and easy roads that lead to destruction. Think of the, uh, all the other things that we as humans do to try and bring true fulfillment, satisfaction in our lives. When we abuse alcohol, relationships, Netflix, food, screen time, all that sort of stuff, we're chasing Eden. Do you realize that? We're chasing, trying to fill some kind of deep thirst or deep longing within the soul of human beings. And according to Jesus in John 4, that kind of satisfaction is only found in him in a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. And that is exactly, this, this water flowing from God himself will be the sustaining source of satisfaction for all humanity forever and ever. That's just the first one. All right, water of life. The second thing, what do we see? We see the tree of life. And this is very familiar. Last time we saw the tree of life was in Genesis, right? In the Garden of Eden. The tree of life is signifying healing. Remember, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Let's flash back to Genesis 3.24. God drove out the man, man and woman, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then in the center of the garden, there's the tree of life. And we're not sure exactly how it all works, but essentially the tree of life is signifying this sustaining life force that God shares with people. Without it, you, you, you die, right? If you don't have access to it, you die. And what shows up there in the New Jerusalem? It's not just a tree of life, it's a better tree of life. It's on both sides of the river. I mean, picture that. I mean, how does that even work, right? You have a whole river, and then there's a tree that is somehow two places at once. Maybe it grows together. Again, we're not sure exactly how all this stuff works, but that's showing access. Who has access within the city of the Tree of Life? Absolutely everyone. Doesn't matter which side of the river you're on. You have access. How many kinds of fruit does this tree? Not just one. Twelve. Oh, have you ever seen a tree with 12 absolutely distinct different fruit on it. This is like unheard of, right? This is beautiful. If you don't like bananas, that's great. There's pomegranates, right? There's, there's, there's variety. How often does this tree produce its fruit? All the time. It's, it's continuously in production. So this is this idea. It's not just, you know, this, this one tree. And this, it's, this, it's, a, it's a new and better tree of life that we see. And this tree uh, shows us, the importance of this tree is, first of all, there's physical healing. There's physical healing. Death will be no more. Sickness will be no more. Uh, my, my family's home this morning because they've got sick kids, right? I mean, when you think about that, this is so, this is, this is what our hope is in one day. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the fact that we will die physically, this is what he has to say about our resurrected bodies. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 and 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, this is garden language. What is sown, seeds, put planted in the ground, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And so there's this beautiful promise that yes, 
Though our bodies decay and die, though sickness and death still reign in this present age, it will not be like this forever. And they say the only two things in life are certain are death and taxes. <laughs> not forever. I hope we don't pay taxes in heaven. I don't know. <laughs> we, we won't die for sure, right? And there's this beautiful, there's this beautiful hope of physical healing. Do you crave that? When you look at loved ones who have passed away, when you look at people in the hospital, I mean, I pray through every single prayer request that comes in every single week. There is a lot of physical healing that people need. It's one, it's one of those areas that our hearts ache. All of creation cries out. And guess what we're longing for? The tree of life. We're longing for these leaves that provide healing to the nations. So there's this sense that we have physical healing, we have this, this body, these imperishable, these glorified bodies. But then there's also this worldwide healing. The, the leaves of the tree are not just for you personally to be healed, it's for healing the nations. And this speaks to the idea that the curse, anything accursed will not be there, to quote it. AKA, the curse of Genesis 3 is finally lifted. It's finally absent. Uh, Randy Alcorn, in his book just titled, Heaven, where he takes a, a really beautiful, imaginative look at the new heavens and the new earth. He writes this, if the earth is still awesome and beautiful now under the curse, how much more awesome will it be in the new earth without the curse? So think about that for a moment. What's the best meal you've ever had? Multiply it by a million. What's the best scenic view that, you've, that your eyes have ever uh, taken in, multiply by a million. What's the best music or concert you've ever been to? Multiply it by two million. No, you get the idea, right? It's this idea that, that we don't look at the world now and it's, it's not all doom and gloom. Yes, there's sin, there's evil, there's death, there, there's all of that sort of stuff. But we still actually see these remnants of God's good creation that actually moves us to glorifying God. And if we can see that now, Imagine what that experience is going to be like, the healing of the nations, this, this beautiful, here's the point, here's the point. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And, and I think so often we get, we get maybe hyper-focused on the present age and the hope that we have in this present age. And it's very important that we have hope in this present age. But if we forget about the best is yet to come, to quote the Apostle Paul, we of all people are to be most pitied. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And this is such a beautiful idea. But that's not it. Wait, there's more. All right, number three. The third thing we see in the New Jerusalem, this garden city, is the throne of God. This is truly the best part. And it says that God's servants will worship him. So we will be serving and worshiping forever. And ever, and before you, before you kind of, uh, you know, think about that in the wrong way, worship is uh, spans well beyond what we do here on a Sunday morning. It's not necessarily this, you know, uh, never-ending worship service where we just play, you know, the same worship song on repeat over and over, and we're like bored out of our minds, and we're like, when, you know, when can I go to brunch? And, you know, it's not, it's not going to be. It's this idea of worship, God. Yes, we will be singing and praising. And I think, in fact, we won't be able to help it. We'll be so overwhelmed over, uh, and overflowing with praise 
and glory. But worship is much bigger than the songs that we sing. All of our lives, if we're living them right, are actually a form of worship. And there's this line, they will see God. Let's take a step back for a moment and think about the last time that people fully were able to take in who God was. It was when God walked with Adam and Eve in the afternoons, in the cool of the day. Even Moses, okay? Moses was like, maybe like the next closest that we see. Remember in the tent of meeting, he would speak with God as a friend is speaking to a friend. Even then though, he had to, God had to veil himself. Moses in one moment in Exodus 33 asked God, show me your glory. Look at what God's response is. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Doesn't matter how righteous, how holy you think you are, right? Sin cannot be in the presence of such a holy God. And yet in this new Jerusalem, there is no temple. And this is significant. In Revelation 21, it says there's no temple because who is the temple? God himself is the temple. You don't need a priest to mediate. You don't need a place to go and there's a holy place and there's a veil and there's a holy of holies and there's a veil. And you don't have to go through all these hoops. Access to God himself is granted. Do you desire this? Do you crave this? This is truly the best part about heaven. And I think for believers right here, right now, we face this kind of tension where if we were truly honest, we think about no more sickness. Man, I really want that. You know, the, the fruit, the banquet. I wonder what that tastes like. We think about all those sorts of things. But do you truly believe that the best part about heaven is this fully restored, intimate relationship that we will have with the king who sits on the throne? James Hamilton Jr. says it like this. Heaven without Jesus and the Father will be nothing less than a gold-plated hell. Jesus and the Father are heaven. And that is no less true now than it will be then. And I would just, I would just encourage you, as a, if you're a follower of Jesus, to really consider that. Do you crave the kingdom without craving the king? Do you crave the gold-plated hell, but you're not all that interested in that intimate relationship with God? Eternal life is relationship restored, not just with one another, but relationship fully restored with God. Or to put it in Jesus's own words from John 17, three, and this is eternal life. Ready for a definition of eternal life? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If that is eternal life, and that is the best that is yet to come, is that the throne is there and we will see God uninhibited, is that what we're doing right now? Because guess what? You can know Jesus Christ right now. You can know God right now. You can practice that relationship that we will be living out in heaven forever right now. The throne room is available to you. And I think in this lifetime, perhaps, because we're so caught up in the gifts, we forget the good father who gives those gifts, that perhaps in this lifetime, we're even missing out on some of the best parts. Because access to the father has been granted to us by Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the third thing. Number four, if you're taking notes, this is the, the fourth one I wanna highlight. The last one is, it says that the saints will reign forever. This speaks to our divine purpose. 
Do you remember the Garden of Eden where God said to, to Adam and Eve that they would have dominion, they would rule, and they would reign over the earth? They would have work to do, they would have a job to do, they were made on purpose for a purpose. Well, guess what? There's work to do in heaven. If you thought you were gonna retire at the age of 65 and then, you know, it's just lemonades and lattes forever, I mean, part of the idea is, is that we were actually created to do work, to have a purpose. And in some senses, when we're, we're robbed of that purpose, we, we all of a sudden start thinking like, man, is there meaning to, like, is life meaningless, right? I feel like I was supposed to do something, but imagine work with all of the sin and the evil and the brokenness removed from it. I mean, imagine getting finished with a, a project or, you know, a job well done, and, and you just feel like that was what I was made to do, and then getting up every single morning forever. I don't know if we'll sleep, right? Don't read too much into some of this stuff. But every single day for the rest of eternity, you get to have that kind of experience, ruling and reigning forever and ever. And this idea that we will reign forever and ever is maybe new to some people. I mean, think of the hallelujah chorus, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's true. If you wanna read that in scripture, it's in Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. Yes, Christ Jesus is on the throne and he will reign forever and ever. But just like God created the universe and then wanted to partner with humanity in ruling over the earth, that's exactly what we will be doing forever and ever on the new earth. Do you realize that? That Christ Jesus will reign forever and ever and he invites us not to sit on the throne with him or certainly not to take the throne from him, but to be his royal ambassadors in sharing his goodness and his blessings forever and ever. Dallas Willard called life right now training for reigning, right? We're training right now. We're learning what it looks like to reign forever and ever on the renewed earth with Christ Jesus. I think about the parable of the 10 minas and, and the, the, the servants who were faithful with what they were entrusted, guess what they were rewarded with? Cities to rule over, right? That should inform us. That should inform us that there's stuff for us to do. In this present age, John Mark Comer in his book, Garden City, he says this, you will take the person you become with you into God's future. And who you become is your most valuable asset. It's hard to say exactly you know, how our present actions are going to play into eternity. But one thing seems very certain, that the person you become, right, the accumulation of your decisions, your choices, what you choose to give your life to, what you choose to worship with your life, you will take that into eternity. And that will play in, I think, in some way to how we rule and reign forever and ever. We will worship, we will serve, we will work, we will rest. And if any of that doesn't sound good to you, it's probably much, much better than you could imagine, right? It's not like you're gonna be in a heavenly cubicle forever and ever and you're miserable. It's this beautiful restoring of our intended purpose that we were given in Eden. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, his second letter. There in 5.17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, not will be, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And, and this is really why Paul is saying this. He knows, he just wrote it in the, the, the other letter, right? That our hope is not fully in this present age, right? There will be a resurrection. There is a future hope that we are awaiting. But, but as he says, you are a new creation right now, what he's essentially saying is live like it's right now. 
Live like you're there right now. Rule and reign like you're going to do forever and ever right now. Worship like you will do forever and ever right now. You know, live out that new creation. Here's, here's the way to say it. Here's my main point for today. Eternal life starts now. Starts right now. Eternal life starts now. And our daily prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to usher heaven into earth right now. Not, I'm so glad your kingdom will come, so I guess we can live our lives right now, however we want. And it's all just gonna be fulfilled one day in the future after we die, so we don't really have to worry about it all that much. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We need to live our lives every single day, understanding that if you know Christ Jesus, our Lord, eternal life has begun for you. And you have the opportunity to live into that new Jerusalem, that garden city identity, and for the future hope that you have to actually make a real tangible difference on your everyday life. Is that good news? Amen, that is good news. That is our true fulfillment of hope. And yet, here at the end, I'm gonna end with a little bit of a downer and a sober note, because I think it's a dishonest teaching about heaven to not at least address the fact that not everyone will be there. We have, to, we have to work hard to skip over certain parts like the lake of fire and eternal punishment if we're gonna do an accurate job reading, uh, reading Revelation, the last two chapters. It's very clear that there cannot be an earth that contains nothing accursed if there are still people present in that city who are cursing God forever and ever. Does that make sense? Revelation 22, just a few verses later in verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. So God has given that privilege and honor to those who are saved and that they may enter by the gates. But outside the city are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Not everyone will be in the city. And I believe every you know, teaching that we have from Christ Jesus himself, as well as the apostles in the New Testament, we have these teachings on hell, eternal punishment. And it's hard to say exactly what some of that stuff will be like. There's conflicting metaphors, like darkness and fire, but fire gives off light, right? And there's gnashing of teeth. And I think all of those kind of pictures are meant to warn us. They're meant to warn us. And I promise you, I'm not trying to scare or manipulate anyone into heaven, into becoming a Christian. But they are all intended to instill us with a level of fear, healthy level of fear and sobriety. And I would just ask you this question. If only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are the people who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, here's a question I would just leave to you. If you're maybe still on the fence, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Numerous times in Revelation, Jesus says to his, his church, behold, I am coming, anyone know? Soon. And that was 2,000 years ago that this was written. John, in his letter, 1 John, he says, we're in the final hour. We're in the final hour. Before I'm done preaching this sermon, Jesus could come back. I fully believe that. He's coming soon. 
And I, I would just say this to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, you know you're saved by grace through faith, that's great. What are you waiting for in living eternal life? What are you waiting for in living that kind of new identity? What are you waiting for in sharing the hope of the gospel with your unbelieving friends and neighbors? What are you waiting for? This should fill us not just with, with touchy-feely good feelings, that's gonna be great. This should fill us with urgency. Go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded to you. And truly, I say to you, I will be with you into the end of the age. So Christ Jesus is with us, but he has given us a mission. What are you waiting for? And if you're here and you're maybe on the fence, and again, I'm not trying to like pressure you in decision right here, right now, but I would say to you, take it very seriously. Honestly, ask yourself, what am I waiting for? What other evidence do I need? What other questions do I need answered? And begin a serious journey of discerning, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he raised from the dead? Jesus is coming back soon. And today, if you hear his voice through scripture, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Uh, I would encourage you, if today is the day, to not neglect the work that the Holy Spirit might be doing in you in your heart right now. And today, to be the day where you ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life, you can pray today. You can pray right now during this next song. You can pray with a member of our prayer team at the end of service. You can even make a decision to get baptized today. In fact, the baptistry is mostly full back there. And uh, we have eight people today who will be experiencing baptism. They'll be experiencing having their lives washed by the blood of Christ. Blessed are those who are in the city. Those are the ones who have been washed by the lamb. I believe that's, that's not an incidental symbol, right? That baptism is this ceremony of initiation, the ceremony of declaring your faith in Jesus. And if you've been putting off baptism, I would just encourage you to go to hillcityboise.org slash baptism, watch the video, sign up. What are you waiting for? To experience having your sins washed away by Christ Jesus. Like I said, we have an opportunity. Unfortunately, they're all at second service. Every single person who signed up is at second service. Uh, but I wanna encourage you, check social media. You can, you can watch those later. We're gonna, we're gonna post video and, and maybe photos of people getting baptized. What are you waiting for? Eternal life starts now. Let's pray. God, I pray that as your Holy Spirit has stirred our hearts today through your word, I pray that we would respond accordingly. God, I pray that as you draw people to yourself as only you can do, I pray there would be people in this room whose lives are changed for eternity. Knowing that our lives, however many years you give us here in this present age, they do matter significantly. They're setting us up on a trajectory for eternity. God, and I just ask that your Holy Spirit would draw people to, to himself. Bring us to the understanding of the gospel that we need and help us live out eternity right now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.